This is the third time Lydia has heard this message this morning. I was quizzing her in the truck. And sure enough, she can stand up here and give you the message in about three minutes. She got all the right points. I even asked her some follow-up questions. Uh, but who wants a three-minute sermon when you can have a 25-minute sermon? Right? So anyway, I was proud of her for paying attention. She got it. She said, uh, she says 11 15 if you use a 30 minute sermon. I don't know what she knows about it. A couple years ago, I was driving, uh, we were going to a friend's event back in our hometown of Summit Point, West Virginia. And I had uh, loaded up the kids, and I was excited to show a few of the younger ones that had never seen my home place, the place where I was born and raised. And as we arrived into the little uh, village and turned down my street, I slowed down and we kind of looked over and uh, my heart sank because of what we saw. And what we saw was not the, uh, the home that I remembered. Uh, this place uh, that was there now was hardly recognizable because of the way it had been worn down and not taken care of. And not just the curb appeal, but you know, the walls and the roof and the, and the garage. It was just in a, in a terrible place. And I was heartbroken uh, because you know, instead of being excited about telling some stories and sharing some ways and things I used to do in the yard or on the porch, uh, I was just distracted by uh, the ruins of, of going back home. This is a, a place where this working prophet, this leader, Nehemiah, finds himself in this moment of grief and moment of mourning, mourning about what his home place looks like now. This book, uh, just in a little bit of context, just to, to help show us the way a little bit, uh, just roughly, uh, this is during the exilic period when the Babylonian exile had taken place previously. Uh, the Babylonians took over and destroyed and, and sent people away in about, in about 587 B.C. So we're talking about nearly 600 years before Christ, just to set the, the, the place in time context. This is also towards the end of that period. And so people were already starting to be allowed to go back home and and do some things in Jerusalem if they wanted to. Um, and then specifically, we're in chapter 2 of this book called Nehemiah. And, and, but something important happens in chapter 1, and it goes like this. Nehemiah, who is a remarkable man, a remarkable leader in the Bible, and he was uh, so trusted that as he was exiled, taken away as a prisoner of war, taken away, and, and he found himself employed in the foreign government for the king. He is in present-day Iran, of all places. And we know about you know, Iran and Israel today, how they get along, they don't. Uh, but he's in modern-day Iran, and, and some of the areas and places that Jim, our veteran, has been to in, in this world. So it's not a great place to be. 
But Nehemiah has risen to a one of the most trusted positions in all of the court. He's the cupbearer of the king. So he makes sure, basically, the king doesn't get poisoned. Uh, so he has a great relationship with this foreign king. Where he finds himself is that his brother and some other men have come back from Jerusalem and told him about the ruins. Like, this is what we saw. Um, and, you know, basically, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but basically, you can hear the conversation. You know, you don't want to go back there. Uh, it's, it's not what we are used to. It's destroyed, basically. Um, and so Nehemiah begins a period of grief and mourning and prayer and confession and discernment and time with God over his broken heart. He goes in one day to the king, and he's bringing the cup to the king that particular morning. And the king recognizes this. And he says, look, dude. Probably didn't say dude, but look, Nehemiah, uh, you know, what's wrong? He questions it. He notices that something is wrong with him. You're, you've never been like this. The scripture does say that. You've never been like this. And I know you're not physically sick, so you must have a broken heart. So the king nailed it right on. And Nehemiah goes on to explain what had happened and the report about the report. The king does a remarkable thing here. This foreign king. He gives, not only does he give Nehemiah time off, he gives him permission to go back home. Not only does he give him permission to go back home, he gives him resources to make the trip. He gives him letters of passage that he'll have to show his paperwork along the trail. He gives him an army of men to protect him along the way. And further, he gives him some supplies to get started on the work at hand once he gets back to Jerusalem. So it's a great part and a great beginning of this journey to rebuilding the walls. When Nehemiah gets back to uh, Jerusalem, what he discovers is uh, he needs a little bit of rest. And how about a biblical three days? The three days, he chills out, rests. On that third night, in the midst of darkness, he doesn't tell anyone other than his animal, right? His donkey, Lydia's mimicking all my, all my movements now because she's seen this three times. But now I'm getting tackled from my tendril. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> he tells his donkey. It's kind of like a fun little Disney movie. Like he's talking you know, to the animal. Doesn't say the animal talk back. Uh, but anyway, he gets on this animal and he walks around the wall. All the way around. Inspecting every piece of a broken down ruined wall. Every gate. And then he comes back around. And by morning, uh, he goes to have a meeting with... Uh, friends and family and, and others, and he explains to them what he had witnessed, and he also talks about what he has discerned from God, and the crowd that he had gathered with says, let's get to it, let's rebuild. Now there is some tension, there is some drama, there's some people that aren't so excited about uh, rebuilding the wall, and they're for various reasons, and, and we'll get to that some later at the end of the book even. Um, but the wall is going to be built. And Nehemiah has received 
the word and instruction uh, from God. They are even mocked and like, like, dude, you can't do this. You cannot rebuild this wall. How are you going to do it? And he answers that with, hey, God in heaven is going to give us the power to do it, and when it's done, you don't get to enjoy it. That's how that passage ends. But then something more important and more uh, fascinating helping, help, uh, happens. They begin to actually do the work. And this is key. In chapter 3 it says, Then Elisha, the high priest, set to work with his fellow priests. He built the sheep. The people of Jericho built next to them. Zakur built next to them. The children of Hesanah built the fish gate. And then next to them, Merimoth, Uri's son, and Hekas' grandson made repairs. Next to them. Then Zadok made repairs next to them. This refrain, refrain, next to them, happens 11 times in 11 verses. 11 times the word or the phrase next to them. And so that's how they set out to do their work on this crumpled wall all the way around the city of Jerusalem, including the gates, the multiple gates. They focus on their particular part of the job, and the next group focuses on their particular part of the job, and so on and so forth. And then within 30 days, miraculously, the wall is built and completed, finished. 30 days. Take a step back for a moment and we think about how remarkable this really is. I mean, and it's not just because Nehemiah had a great God vision and he's a good leader. It's because these individual groups of people actually concentrated on this stone. The stone that was right in front of them. We don't operate that way very often. If we were going to do a project today, uh, you all call us over, and we were going to work on something together, the first thing we would do is we would get ready to get ready to start. Get ready to get ready to start. I that on purpose. And, we, and then borrow down to say, wait a minute, let's have a meeting. We've got to have a committee meeting about this. Alright? And then once we got that all worked, then we start to get ready to lay the first stone and and Jim would say, Linky, that's not how you do it. That's not how we did it in the Middle East. All right? And then we go, and then Mary would say, well, Jim, you know, you're always bossing everybody around. She'd be worried about what he was doing. And then we'd go over here, and Linda would say, I'm not working with Linky. She's, you know, he's Carol's problem. I'm not. And then, and then we'd go over here, and, and we would continue one problem after another. And then Alan would say, that's not how we do it in Europe. Make sure you're with, 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 with. So you get the point, right? And, and then further, you know, we'd we be so distracted about you know, all the other things that are going on in our life, and the things that we run through our mind, and about relationships, and about stuff that we got to do next week. All oh, Thanksgiving's coming, they've already put Thanksgiving stuff out, and now it's going to be Christmas, and we just be so distracted that we miss what's right in front of 
front of us. Not only miss what's right in front of us, but miss the whole point that that is, A, the only thing we can control, and two, it's the most important thing. A, B. B is the most important thing. This stone. You know, we hear the phrase all the time, let's just do one thing at a time. Just do one stone at a time. We're taking, we're taking that even further. Not, just, not one stone at a time. This stone at a time. Because that's the real issue here that would that would sometimes trip you and I up here in a story like this in terms of building a wall, you know, one section at a time is because um, yeah, sometimes we can do one step at a time, but we get all out of whack in terms of realizing that it's this stone, it's this right in front of us that's the issue. We wake up Wednesday morning. First of all, my first prayer is that we know who the president is. It's not going to be drawn out for months and months and months. But, but chances are, well, not chances are, when we wake up Wednesday morning, there's going to be tons of problems in the world, regardless of who wins the president or not. And we get so, and, you, and rightfully so, we, we can and we do, and sometimes further we will, we get so discouraged about all the problems in the world. How in the world can we get that on track? And we're right to have that worry. Our country's in a bad shape in certain ways in certain places. There's also hope in certain ways in certain places. You've got to hold those attention. But we get so bogged down by the so much of our problems that we see. Where in the world will we start? And there's sometimes I drive through, like if you go to John's Hopkins Hospital, Drive through some of those neighborhoods. And I don't mean this in any, any way other than it's just facts. You look out your window, and those, some of those neighborhoods are so much like in ruins, basically. It's just terrible condition. And a lot of times, what tugs at my heart, I don't mean this to, again, in any other way other than I'm just telling you the truth. I wonder, like, poor little old grandmother in one of these apartments trying to raise kids that aren't hers, you know, where, where does she even start? Then you go, you know, if, if I was a council person or a clergy person in that area, where would you even begin to help lift up a whole block, city block, or community that's in ruins just by the outside appearance that I have no idea what's going on inside those homes? But that's, if you could transfer that to any problem in the world, where in the world would you start? You start with this stone. And a lot of times, when you know, when we start the, the other issues, we start worrying about other stones. We start worrying about other people's stones too much. And we forget that the issue is, first and foremost, us. If we want to make the United States of America a better place, then start with who's in the White House. Then start with who's in Congress. It starts with you and I. It starts with I, with me. This stone. I have work the work that needs to be done first and foremost is in me first. Tomorrow the biggest work that God has to do as far as I'm concerned is in me. It's my heart. Then we you know and then, then Justin can have that same prayer to God. 
Okay, can have that same prayer, that same mission. The biggest work to be done is this, though, right in front of me. It's me. Now, a day like today, of all saints day, I think about saints that have come before us. Before me, I think about my dad, who's been gone for a few years now, growing up in that whole household and you know, no matter what the outside looks like today or ever did, what was most important was what was going on on the inside. My dad believed in Jesus the Christ and the Holy Spirit working in him, and it showed. He had great command of patience, joy, and self-control, all those fruit of the Spirit, yes, that the Apostle Paul had talked about. And I know, I know that that's the way I want to be. Regardless of what else is going on around me, you know, I want people to look at me and say, it doesn't make any sense. You have those seven crazy kids in your house, it doesn't make sense that you have that kind of self-control and patience. But the only way it does is that something, a higher power was working in you. Holy Spirit, that's the way I want to be, and that's the way my dad was. This stone, this stone is what needs to be working on right now. It's this stone, my stone, my heart. I think one of the reasons that I loved her braver so much was because he reminded me of my dad. A whole lot of different ways, and we won't rehash all that, but but he did. And I know that you know her for almost the whole time I was here, her struggled with his health. And in most days, if you ever went to see him, you would never have known him. Most days. That's because of his heart. The disease could affect all of his body. His whole body was affected up until his death. But it couldn't touch his heart that had been transformed by his relationship with God through Jesus Christ. His sin, that was the sin. He could not. Linda could not. Nobody, none of the family could. Fix all the other stones in his life. Doctors try. Everybody try. But what could be managed was a stone that was right in front of him. And that was his faith in Jesus Christ. Never wavered. And you could always tell. Anytime. You could tell him. Even in his darkest days. I encourage you to think about the saints that have gone before you in your life this day. Think about why it is there a witness in your life. I mean, what was it about that person? What was it about a person of faith in your life that's no longer with us? Why you call them a saint? I call Janet a saint because she's been married to Harry for all those years. <laughs> What is it? And then pray to God and say, God, you know, this, this is this is the stone that's in front of me. I want to be more like this saint that I'm lifting up in my life. I want to be more like her. I want to be more like my dad. I want to be more like Jenny Parker. I want to be more like whoever it is that you name person through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do any of this. Do we not? We can't work it out ourselves. Through faith in Christ, through the Holy Spirit. This stone, 
work right in front of us. Accomplish it by not getting distracted by all the other things that will be, that'll be coming our way. What we're going to discover as we turn the pages is, as good of a leader as Nehemiah is, there's going to be struggles. And they're going to get attacked while they're working. There's going to be drama. There's going to be issues along the way. But if you stay focused, eat fruit on the wall, on the gate, on the stone, right in front of you. God has.